25 in its entirety. I planned to do just the first 12 verses, and as I looked at it, it was like, well, i got to add this section because it goes, and then i got to add this section because it goes. So I'm not trying to rush through the end of Acts, but I'm just, I am just I want to preserve the narrative character of it. And uh, there is a lot of repetition at the end of Acts, but there's a reason for that. Um, so we will look at the whole chapter today. And let's pray before we go to the Word. Father, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of men and women who have testified before us to your faithfulness. So let us run our own races that you have set before us with endurance, laying aside those weights of sin that cling to us and ensnare us, looking not to ourselves or to the world, but to the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. And may we look to him today through this text of your holy word. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Acts 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush and an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority come among you, go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused men of the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay 
but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case for such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And this is God's word. You may be seated. <coughs> this may be, sound a bit cheesy at first, but it's a helpful image. That is, what is your North Star? What is that fixed point of reference by which you navigate through uh, your life through the turbulence and confusion that assails every one of us. There's a lot of confusion. Uh, we could consider Paul's own story and experience, and we, we might ask, why, from a divine perspective, is Paul still in prison? Why has God decided to keep the most capable, effective ministry locked away in prison for two years at this point and for more to come? Or we could zoom out and look at the, the whole purpose of the book and, and think about Theophilus himself and really even us as the intended audience of the book of Acts. How do, how, how do we, how does Theophilus chart a course? Uh, it's confusing. Christianity for him was brand new. And so what does he do? He's at this river with these Y's. You can go down the Christian channel. You can go down the Jewish channel. You can go down the Roman channel, the Jewish channel, the G, this Jesus fellow is not the Messiah. Christianity is a diversion from the old faith, or as he is a, probably a high-ranking Roman official, uh, he could do what other Roman officials have done and, and focus, focus mostly on his own career and saving his own hide. Or he could take the plunge and start to follow this man from Nazareth, Jesus. How do you choose? What's the guiding star? What's the fixed point? Well, for us, the Bible is a wonderful gift uh, for many reasons, of course, but because it gives us the opportunity to peek behind the scenes. 
seeing the bigger picture for these people who are going through these struggles uh, and ordeals for them blind, not knowing the providence of God. But we get to look behind the scenes and see the providence of God at work. I believe as we observe Paul in these narratives and in his letters, uh, that his North Star, that firmly fixed point for him, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For him, if that's true, everything else is true. If everything else is moving, that charts his course. So if we, as we've gone through this book, this is an apologetic. Luke is making an effort to convince his audience, to convince us uh, to follow Christ, to follow Christianity confidently, to the exclusion of all other streams. His aim has been to show that Christianity is the way. In contrast to Judaism and and Roman save-your-own-hide, focus on this earthly kingdom mentality, and to show that as, as the kingdom of Christ advances, that it's not a threat to the Roman Empire. That, that is not a flash in the pan, political irritant, or side shoot sect, but it is the main channel of the historic redemptive plan of God. And again, in this text, we see these themes, and, in, and especially at first here, this theme that Judaism is not the way. So as we come to verse 1, Festus uh, replaces Felix. Remember, Felix was recalled by the Emperor Nero. He was not a good ruler. Festus is, by all accounts, a fairly good ruler. He takes the job as governor of Judea. And, of course, as governor of Judea, your your, your headquarters is, is Caesarea, but the most important place to visit is Jerusalem. So he goes there within three days of arriving at Caesarea. And the Jews, of course, see the opportunity in this. And this shows how obsessed they are with Paul, that the first thing they bring up after two years is Paul in prison. A brand new governor, they can leverage this for anything they want because he wants to have good relationship with them. They bring up Paul. They say, we'd like to bring Paul up here for a trial. He's got to be put to death for his crimes against the state, against God. Uh, and it's helpful as we look at these to kind of compare what, what uh, Festus says to Agrippa in his own accounting of this. In his uh, accounting in verse 15, he says, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the rulers and the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. They wanted him to be put to death. Uh, But what Festus didn't know is that the Jews are also planning behind his back to spring an ambush on Paul as they had two years prior to kill him. Which ironically, we've seen this before, this secretive plan to skirt around the justice system shows they have nothing to pin on Paul. Paul is innocent before the Jews, but they don't like him, so they're going to murder him. It also shows their hypocrisy as Jews who have zeal without knowledge, that they're willing for, in the name of the law to break the law, to break the sixth commandment, the ninth commandment, in order to kill Paul for their own political benefit. So Luke here, he's continuing uh, piling up evidence for Theophilus, for all his audience, for us, 
that that when that great river of redemptive history split and Christianity went one way and Judaism went another way, Judaism took a hard turn. And Christianity is the channel. It is the way. It's maybe similar to how we might view the split at the Reformation. The church is chugging along and then Protestants split off. We would say Roman Catholicism is not the way. It doesn't have the true gospel, but Protestantism does. It's a very similar thing. So we have to remember this theme in Acts as we chart our own way through life, that uh, there will be these direct doctrinal theological disputes, these splits and ideological challenges to our doctrine, and we must therefore exercise discernment. Um, Some branches stem from the Abrahamic tree, like Judaism or Islam. They are a part, they have some shared roots. Some branches are of the Christian tree uh, to some degree. Some are fairly obvious to us. Like, yeah, don't paddle down that creek. You can hear the waterfall from here. That's uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormons, uh, other cults. Some branches of the, are, are a bit more deceptive. I think Roman Catholicism, for example, uh, is a little closer to the truth and therefore more uh, maybe to us less obvious, or or perhaps Christian liberalism, or theological liberalism. Uh, But only one branch of the river is the way that leads to the land of promise. I think that's what Luke is getting at. Uh, Some of you have been reading Table Talk, and you've got to read about J. Gresham Machen recently. And uh, he wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism, in the 1920s. Um, and this is a great example of discernment, this book. Um, in the 20s, theological liberalism was creeping into the church, was really a strong presence in the church. And Mason wrote his book to combat this. And he employed what I want to call uh, the turkey bacon argument which I have probably shared with you before. The turkey bacon argument, I like turkey bacon. I think it's a valid, tasty food. If you leave a plate of it in my presence, it might not be there for long. It's a good food. But I testify before you this day that it is not bacon. Amen. I call it turkey meat strips. Valid food, not bacon. Well, that's what Machen did in his book, Christianity and and Liberalism. Let's examine the key tenets of theological liberalism. Let's examine Christian, biblical, historical Christianity, Christianity and liberalism. That was his conclusion. Turkey bacon, not Christianity. Christianity is the genuine article. So on the one hand, the, the, the Judaistic branch should not be followed. On the other hand, what about the question of how Christianity interacts with the Roman Empire? And specifically, as we've seen Luke paint the Roman officials as more concerned with the day-to-day of keeping their own careers afloat and uh, and that they keep their own heads on their shoulders. Um, they're not really aware that there's something much bigger going on here, a much bigger kingdom being built than the Roman Empire. So, rightly, 
In 4 and 5, Festus is not willing to bring, bring Paul up to Jerusalem. He says, come down and I'll, tr- I'll, I'll review your case. Try him uh, in, in the presence of both of you. And his account of this to Agrippa in 16, he says, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So, no, that's not the Roman way. We're not going to bring Paul up here. Uh, and Festus shows his his efficiency, his competency as a ruler in contrast to Felix in that he makes this his very first priority. He brings them down the very next day. This is his first case as governor of Judea. He's going to be efficient about it. And again, to Agrippa, Festus says in 18, when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. So in other words, he thought there would be something substantive that we could solve this case and move on, but there was nothing. He says in 19, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. Um, And then this is Paul's fourth of five defenses here at the end of Acts. Uh, Very brief. It's a brief summary, probably very similar to what happened before Felix. But he he says in verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews, nor the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense? And to Felix's or Festus's consternation, uh, this is an open and shut case, and he actually finds himself uh, like Felix before him, left not knowing what to do. He's between a rock and a hard place. Does he dismiss Paul's case and start his new governorship on the wrong foot with the Jews, which would be a bad idea politically? Or does he keep him in prison like Felix? Or does he give him over to the Jewish authorities? And listen to Festus's just insane response in verse 9. Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges before me? He's, he's saying, you, there's nothing here. Or I would punish you now. Would you like to go to Jerusalem and, and do it again? Rehash it again? Because he's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. And he admits as much in verse 20 to Agrippa, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. Of course, Paul is, is wise to this. He knows his rights. He says, look, if I've done something wrong, I would I would face death, the death penalty, uh, if I deserved it. But you know, as well as anybody, I didn't do anything against the, the Jews. And it would be wrong for you to send me to them. And you know that if you did, I would be dead. He, sa- he says, no, I'm in a Roman court, in a Roman prison. If there's anything that remains to be investigated, it should be done by the Roman courts. I appeal to Caesar. So in other words, Paul, Paul realizes he's either going to rot in prison like he did with under Felix. He's going to be sent as a favor to the Jews or this third way. This is his only real option. It was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal a case to Caesar, especially a case that involved the death penalty. Um, Caesar at this time would have been Nero, which I don't wouldn't want to go to Nero. Caesar, but 
uh, Nero was still at this time early in his his rule, and he was advised by people like Seneca, and it was a good season of his rule. He hadn't plunged as deep into insanity as he would, or to Christian persecution as he would yet. Festus uh, consults his advisors so at at general assembly for for our church. You have a moderator, and then there's this panel of men behind him. And they're called the um, the parliamentarians. So the uh, moderator gets stuck, and he says, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. Let me consult the parliamentarians. That's essentially what Festus is doing. I'm going to consult the, the parliamentarians. And they say, yeah, that's okay. You can. That's legal. You can do that. So... To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And I think Festus was thinking, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? That solves all of my problems too, because now I don't have to deal with the Jews or with Paul. But we should pause here just again to note the irony and the absolute insanity of Festus's confused response. These, these Roman rulers have no North Star. They're unhinged. There's no fixed point for them except an instinct for self-preservation. Wishing to do the Jews a favor. That was his whole reason for saying, maybe you could go to Jerusalem. Now the insanity uh, only gets better <laughs> if you think it's funny or worse if, if you're Paul. Well, well, Paul is waiting in prison to go to Rome. He says in 21, Festus says, But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So he's waiting there. And during this time, Agrippa and Bernice come to Festus. As you would expect, he's a new governor. They're the, uh, he's the king. They're going to greet one another. And Agrippa is a Herod, the son of Agrippa II who died in chapter 12 when he was boastful and then got eaten by worms. You remember, so he's Agrippa the first son. Um, Agrippa is brother of Drusilla, who we saw last time was Felix's wife. And uh, he says that Bernice came with him, and Bernice is not Agrippa's wife. She is his sister as well. So Drusilla, uh, Bernice, and Agrippa are siblings. Um, Bernice had been married at one time to her uncle, and then after his death, she lived with her brother, and there were rumors, likely true, that they were in an incestuous relationship. Um, in order to quell the rumors, she married the king of Cilicia, but then left him, came back to Agrippa, and then eventually later down the road, she'll become the mistress of Titus, who is the general who is responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, eventually became the, the, the emperor of Rome. So uh, she, she, she's a mess. Okay, This is a messy family. Um, Agrippa himself was a Roman vassal king, and it's complicated, but he wasn't king of Judea. He was king of the, some of the northern, more northerly provinces. Um, and he was still given the privilege of appointing the high priest, uh, but he was apparently very interested in Judaism. Paul says to him in his defense before him in chapter 26, verses 2 and 3, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So, 
He kind of knew what was up more than Festus did. That's why Festus is asking him for his advice. When Agrippa hears Festus's account of what's going on, he says, I would like to hear Paul myself in verse 22. And then just listen to Luke's description of this courtroom scene as it as it's about to unfold and pay attention to the irony that he, that's in, in this account, uh, beginning in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to li- not to live any longer. But I had found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. I'm going to send him to Caesar, but I don't know what to say that he did. That's what he's saying. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I might have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. It's insane. We're having this hearing so I I can put anything down on a piece of paper to let Caesar know what's going on. He has nothing against Paul. Also, just considering the, the nature of these people that are judging him, Agrippa and Bernice and the immorality they live in, standing in judgment over Paul. Richard Longnecker puts it well here. He says, But though the situation was contrived, the situation being the pomp, uh, was contrived to assert the importance of Roman officialdom and the inferiority of the man who stood before it, Luke's divinely inspired insight penetrated the trappings and saw the situation was really reversed. And this evaluation has prevailed in history. So once again... Just like we saw in Acts 19, the, the enemies of the gospel have convened against it, not knowing why they have convened. And are doing it with great pomp. It's just the absolute embarrassing foolishness of the enemies of the gospel being exposed. To us, I think, and, and to Luke, that it was intentional that he portrayed it this way. To us, it's obvious. We can see through what's going on. But consider it from Paul's vantage. How many times in the last few chapters has a Roman official said, I have nothing to charge Paul with? I'm sending Paul to Caesar, but I don't know what to say. His case has been hashed and rehashed and rehashed before Lysias, before the Jews, before Felix, before Festus, and now Agrippa. And he's been in prison for no reason for two years. So from his perspective, what on earth is God doing with him? We've gone to the hospital to have uh, babies and they, they keep you there. They make us watch videos about baby care, which the first one was okay. That helped. By the fourth, it was like, really? 
And I always start to get really bad cabin fever. Poor Kelly. Not always the friendliest to these wonderful nurses. And I get, I get claustrophobic. I get agitated after a couple of days being constrained to this room. So if I were in Paul's shoes, I think I would be tending toward bitterness and frustration. I think my primary interest, if I had opportunity to speak to the governor, would be to defend my innocence and, and, and the injustice that's being perpetrated against me. It would be hard to see the bigger picture. Uh, in fact, we rarely or hardly almost never see the bigger picture while we're in the middle of these circumstances. I think Derek Thomas brought up the, uh, the same thing with John Bunyan. Spent all this time in prison. To what end? Well, the writing of Pilgrim's Progress next to the Bible, the most published book, right? It's hard to see the bigger picture, picture when you're in the middle of it, but we do have the benefit of hindsight. We can plainly see the orchestrated purposes of God in these events. For example... The promise that Paul would testify in Rome uh, is coming to pass. It's coming to pass slowly and in a sort of unorthodox manner. But Paul is, is about to get an all-expenses-paid travel to Rome. Also, Paul has the opportunity here to testify about Jesus before Festus, before Agrippa, before the tribunes and the leading men of Caesarea. I think this is important as well, and this just hit me, uh, so take it with a grain of salt, but I think there's some relevance here is that for Theophilus, the recipient of this letter, probably again a Roman official, here we have three times or four, if you count Lysias, a witness that is a, a Roman official saying Paul is innocent. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? These are Roman officials saying Paul is innocent. Christianity is innocent. So again, do I go down this Christian path? Are they going to be a problem for Rome? Are they just a sect? They're innocent. Also, God working behind the scenes. Uh, Paul, in his letters, says frequently that his his imprisonments don't strike fear into the hearts of his fellow Christians. It it emboldens them, it strengthens them that he's in prison. Also, the letters that will be produced during the season of imprisonment are probably some of the most clear explanations of the gospel that we have in the Bible and some of the most beloved books that we have in the Bible. And of course, we ourselves are strengthened by this inspired account in Acts. So there's so much going on behind the scenes that Paul can't see that God is orchestrating. I don't think Paul always uh, whistled his way through his sufferings. Second Corinthians is probably the best place to get a sense of his emotional state during these sufferings. Second uh, Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Picture saying that to somebody. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We, we despaired of life itself. For 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I think there's this myth in, in certain portions of Christianity that we shouldn't say things like that, that I'm afflicted or that I, I'm, I'm perplexed. Just trust God. You can be perplexed and trust God at the same time. I, I trust God in my perplexion. Is that a word? Perplexion? Paul always seemed to have a pervading confidence in the sovereignty of God in every circumstance. And I think surveying his theology in the New Testament and here in this text as well. It keeps coming up in these these uh, trials. This point keeps coming up. His fixed navigational point in the mix of confusion is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's interesting that even Festus, he sees this as the heart of the debate between Paul and the Jews. In verse 19, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's what Paul or Festus identifies as, as the central theme of the debate between Paul and the Jews. So for him, if the resurrection is true, whatever else spins around that fixed point, he can proceed with confidence. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, it proves that the way Christianity is the way. It is the channel, the river channel we are to follow. It is the channel of promise and fulfillment. <clears throat> so Paul's commission stems from the resurrection of Christ. If he was not raised, he would not be ascended or have commissioned him personally on the road to Damascus. His ministry to the Gentiles would not exist. The establishment of a heavenly kingdom on earth spreading throughout the world through the Great Commission by the ascended, glorified Christ through his word, people in spirit, all of that is not true if the resurrection didn't happen. But it is true, and that's the central point for Paul. It happened. He was called. The ministry to the Gentiles is, is real. And it enables him here to say, okay, whatever is going on here, this is all part of the plan. Jesus Christ sits on his throne. And we have that same fixed point, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he sits on his throne. I may be perplexed. I may be afflicted. I may be persecuted. I may be struck down. I may be utterly burdened beyond my strength. I may feel as if I have received a sentence of death. But Jesus is alive. and He reigns in glory. And so all of this must be part of the plan. And he must be teaching me not to rely on myself but on God who raises the dead. Amen.